Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong will be speaking to Dr. Justin Turner about his article, Advanced Age Adversely Affects Chronic Rhinosinusitis Surgical Outcomes. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Medtronic. Medtronic's enabling technologies help you perform sinus and skull-based surgery using powered ENT instruments, surgical navigation systems, and balloon sinus surgery tools. Through innovative technology integration, Medtronic brings surgical synergy to your OR, facilitating operative efficiency, value, and outcomes. Visit www.medtronic.com forward slash ENT to learn more. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm Dr. Amber Luong from the Govern Medical School at the University of Texas at Houston. I've invited Dr. Justin Turner from Vanderbilt University Medical Center to discuss his recent paper entitled, Advanced Age Adversely Affects Chronic Rhinosinusitis Surgical Outcomes. Hi, Justin. Congratulations on this recent publication, and thanks for your time today to talk to us about your uh, findings. So let's just jump right in. I think if I understand that this study sort of stemmed from some earlier work that your group published on kind of a unique immunologic profile in elderly CRS patients, can you give us a brief summary of those findings and how that led to the current study that we'll be discussing today? Because it sounds like that under, having that background is important. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we sort of fell into that study by accident. Our group has a lot of interest in molecular endotyping of chronic uh, rhinosinusitis and looking at uh, different inflammatory signatures that patients or groups of patients might have. And as we were doing that work, we had noticed that there was one particular cluster of patients or endotype of patients that was really enriched in older patients. So these were generally individuals that were over the age of 60 years old. And I think in one of these disease clusters, about 70 to 80 percent of the patients were over 60. And so we then looked at a population of 150 patients. We had enrolled over a few years, and we had gathered data, both histopathology, quality of life data, as well as data on some inflammatory markers that we measure in mucus. And the thing that we noticed about the older patients in general is that they have an elevation in pro-inflammatory cytokines that are associated with the body's innate immune response. So these are cytokines like IL-1 beta, IL-6, IL-8, TNF-alpha. And these patients also were more prone to having neutrophilic rather than eosinophilic inflammation. So after we sort of identified this sort of unique signature in these older patients, we really wanted to know whether there was a clinical correlation to that and whether there was a difference in these older patients in terms of what their disease burden was, what their quality of life was at baseline, and also uh, what happens to them going forward with medical or surgical treatment. Interesting. And so what was your hypothesis in this particular study, the current study that we're talking about? So I think our hypothesis was that there would be a difference based on age, but that that difference would likely not be linear. So there was some existing data, and, and the age as a variable has been evaluated previously, particularly with respect to surgical outcomes, and there really hasn't been a lot of differences that have been shown, at least when you look at age as a, as a continuous variable. But our data, our, our data from the lab, had showed that there is no inflammatory difference in patients 
from age 18 until 60. It's not until you hit that age of 60 years old that you start to see a difference. And so we hypothesize that though there might not be a lot of differences in outcomes before that age, that there likely would be some differences afterwards. And did you have an idea of what type of differences you were expecting to see given this neutrophilic profile? Did you have some inclination there prior to, to collecting the data and looking at it? You know, I'll say I had my own biases uh, uh-huh. here because, you know, one of the things that I've appreciated in my practice over the last several years is that I do have this population of older individuals who just don't seem to do very well after surgery. And it, it's a very heterogeneous group. So they can, right. they, some of them have polyps, some of them do not, but they generally just don't seem to do very well. They often have chronic microbial colonization that requires repeated courses of antibiotics. And they're generally poorly responsive to steroids, which I think is probably secondary to this more neutrophilic signature that they have. Mm-hmm. I think personally, I, I felt that these patients were likely to not do as well with surgery. Right. Um, although when you look at their their baseline characteristics, they actually have lower baseline SNOT22 scores. So in that sense, you might suspect that they have less severe disease and might actually do better. So I think you could right. look at it from two two different sides. Well, before we go into the data that you found, can you briefly summarize then how did you go about addressing this uh, hypothesis? What basically what is the study design that you you guys utilized? Sure. So this is a this is a retrospective study of prospectively collected quality of life data, and so we mm-hmm. collect both not 22 scores, and we also collect general health measure called the short form eight or SF eight for all of our patients. And so we went back over a five year period and identified all patients that were undergoing endoscopic sinus surgery for a, a diagnosis of chronic rhinosinusitis, and we tried to be We tried to have inclusion criteria that were somewhat strict, so we wanted to exclude some of the potential confounders up front. So we removed patients, for example, that had unilateral sinus disease or who had isolated fungus balls or Mm -hmm. uh, isolated osteomyelial complex disease. And so we tried to get a fairly homogenous population of patients that were having surgery. And we actually looked both at their baselines, not 22 and SF8 scores, and also looked at their post-operative scores to see if there were any differences. Now, I thought uh, in the methods uh, you did do something unique about the post-operative questionnaires. Can you explain that to the people listening? Sure. So we we actually measured outcomes at several different time points. The earliest time point that we used for this study was three months, and then the uh-huh. latest time point was 24 months. There was a, a lack of follow-up at some of those time points, and so we actually combined each of those time points into a sort of collective score or a mean score over that period of time. We did that for a couple of reasons, but the main one really was to increase the study power. When we looked at individuals' time points, we really sort of lost a lot of our study power when trying to look at these groups, even though we had 450 patients. Did a majority of them end up going like for 24 months or was there some potential bias there that, you know, most of them were for only six months or whatnot? Was there any anything that you saw in your collection? Yeah, so there was some variability in in follow-up, certainly among patients. However, between the patient groups, there there really were no significant differences in follow-up. And how did you come about to choose the, you know, we all use the SNOT22 score, but how, why did you guys choose the SF8? Is there any any particular reason for using that questionnaire? 
So we collect all this data using tablets, and we have just found that data collection and the accuracy and completion of that data collection by patients depends a lot on how much they're asked to complete. Yeah. So, you know, the, the this not 22 questionnaire is, is 22 different questions. It, it, it takes a good bit of time to complete that, particularly for some patients that might not be as comfortable with computers and tablets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we try to keep any secondary questionnaires short to increase the, the likelihood that patients are actually going to complete them. Okay, got it. And then let's go into the main findings of your study. Can you summarize that for us? Sure. I'll start with some of the baseline characteristics. And and this was, I I thought, something that was really interesting. So at baseline, older patients, that is patients older than 60 years old, and and I do want to just say up front here that we divided our patients into three age groups, and we didn't do Mm -hmm. that randomly. So we actually uh, grouped patients into those that were 39 years or younger, those that were between 40 and 59, and those older than 60 years. And we did that specifically because, number one, we wanted to use that 60-year-old cutoff because that's what our data from the lab had showed. And then also we were comparing the SF8 data to a normal U.S. general population sample, Mm -hmm. uh, which has been previously published, and those are the age criteria that are used in that data. Getting back to the findings, for for, for SNOT-22 scores, the older patients actually had the lowest scores, so they actually had the best quality of life among all patient groups, and the, and the patients that had the highest scores were actually those that were middle age. So this was a little bit surprising to me. I, I think I might have assumed that the younger age group might have the worst scores, uh, right. and that, that wasn't the case. We did look at some of the individual subdomain scores, and this does seem to be at least partially due to an increase in symptoms in the sort of non-rhinologic subdomains in the mm-hmm. middle age group, but the older patients had a substantially lower SNOT-22 score at baseline. But the opposite was true with the other questionnaire, the SF-8. Is that true? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, that's that's absolutely right. So it's, it, you know, it, it, it was surprising to me that Though the, these patients, these, these older patients, their sinonasal-specific quality of life was the best, we found the opposite for their general quality of life. So um, they actually, in all of the subdomains of that questionnaire, uh, I think they only, they were statistically lower than a, an age-matched similar population for almost all of them except for one. Mm-hmm. So to us, that suggested that even though their sinonasal specific symptoms might not be as substantial as patients in other age groups, that the fact that they have chronic sinusitis may affect their global health in a more significant way. And do you think that's because there are other comorbidities or non-disease-specific health effects associated with CRS in, in elderly patients? Yeah, I think that that's likely. I mean, this is an age-matched population, so you would think a lot of the confounders would be would be accounted for just by the fact that these are similar patient populations. So in terms of things like polypharmacy, heart disease, and other things that can affect general quality of life, you would think that those would be similar. But certainly for some comorbidities, things like asthma and other right. sort of respiratory-type diseases, that certainly may be the case. 
Yeah, that's what I was I, I was looking at that because I found that to be a very interesting observation. And, and maybe like you said, because one in my experience, the elderly patients get bronchiectasis too. I don't know if you saw that in your elderly population. I don't see as much in the the younger people who get CRS, and so it made me think about like other comorbidities. And so, what was the finding then after they had surgery? What happened to those scores? So all of the patients tended to improve, and I think this has been shown in, in previous work that more or less all age groups do show some benefit mm-hmm. uh, in, in their SNOT-22 scores postoperatively. They also show a benefit in their SF8 scores. However, their patients had the least improvement. Now, this is partially due to the fact that they had lower scores to begin with, uh, right. so you would expect that they might have less improvement going forward. However, we did do a regression analysis and multivariate analysis and, and basically showed that age is still a, a an independent predictor of improvement, both for SNOT-22 scores and for SF8 scores and several subdomains. What about like with the SF8, since you sort of alluded to the fact that maybe some of the, the smaller improvement was because they had a baseline lower SNOT-22 score, did the SF8 improvement, was that much bigger in that uh, population, the elderly population, than let's say the younger group, since they did start at a higher preoperative score. So the comparisons that we use for the the SF8 data is all age matched, and oh, I so see. yeah. So one of the ways that we looked at that is 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 how likely were they to meet their age matched norms after right. surgery. And whereas many of the younger patients, in fact, a majority uh, of them actually met or exceeded their age-matched predicted normative values for the SF8 score and several of the subdomains, mm-hmm. the opposite was true for the older patients where they often did not meet those, those normative values. Hmm. Okay. So given your findings, it says that they still, I think if you reported that still 66% of your elderly population still ended up meeting the uh, minimally clinically significant improvement for SNOT-22, correct? That's correct. So there, there's still some benefit to elderly patients, although maybe less pronounced than to our younger population. Do you feel like this data that you, your observations that you've made here, do you have any concerns about it being able to extrapolate to other elderly cohorts in different parts of the country, knowing that some of the CRS phenotypes may present differently in different geographical regions or weather conditions? Do you feel that we could extrapolate what you found in other parts of the country? I think that's always difficult with chronic sinusitis because there is so much data suggesting some geographic differences, both in phenotypes and endotypes. I will say that by no means do I believe that this data suggests that older patients should not have surgery because, like Mm -hmm. you said, 60 to 70 percent of them do well, and they do meet the MCID after surgery. And actually, when you compare that particular outcome between the age groups, we actually didn't find a significant difference. And so between the, the, the three different age groups. So even though the younger patient group was much more likely to meet that MCID, the difference between those groups wasn't actually statistically significant. I think what the data shows or suggests is that we need to carefully consider surgery in this older patient population for a few different reasons. So reason number one is is the data in the paper suggests that the patients may not get as much benefit with the surgery itself. It also suggests that at baseline, their disease doesn't really bother them quite as much as it does patients in younger age groups. 
And there's also fairly good data that suggests that older patients are more likely to experience uh, postoperative or intraoperative complications during sinus surgery. So I just think it's just one more data point that needs to be considered, particularly with respect to patient counseling. Can it be extrapolated to other populations? I mean, I think it can. The characteristics of our population are not that dissimilar from those that have been published elsewhere, both mm-hmm. in the United States and Europe, in, in terms of polyp status and asthma prevalence and things like that. So I think it is a fairly representative population, but certainly uh, multi-institutional studies would probably be more effective at determining that. And then just a little bit off of an aside, but when I was reading your paper and thinking about this, it also made me think about, do you know if we have any data on what is the average improvement of, let's say, SNOT-22 or even SF8 for medical therapy and broken down into these different age groups. Has anyone looked at that, and or have, is your group interested in looking at that? I wonder, has anyone looked at the same thing uh, for medical treatment, whatever def- definition of medical treatment you should want to look at, and see if there's a difference in how people respond based on their age to, let's say, steroids. You sort of alluded to that already, that sure. you know, some of your older populations didn't respond as well to steroids. And I guess ultimately what I'm getting to is this whole idea that you sort of brought up in your manuscript about personalized medicine and things like that. And the only way you can kind of think about that is what are all the different treatment options out there and are there differences in terms of, let's say, response in a given cohort of patients? And the ones you're looking at right now that seem to pop out was this elderly group or people who are older than 60. So now it made me think about, are there, is there data out there for just medical therapy and, and age breakdown? So the only thing that I can think of offhand is I, I think Zach Soler's group did a, had a really nice study where they looked at phenotypic characteristics of chronic sinusitis and used cluster analysis to group those patients based on a number of these different characteristics and then sort of follow them in terms of medical management going forward. Okay. And I think in that case, one of the discriminant variables was actually age. So I think there were a fairly small number of variables that they identified that could effectively group patients and and sort of predict their medical outcomes. And I believe that one of those primary variables was actually age. And it was a negative variable, meaning they didn't respond as well? There was one cluster of patients in particular that tended to be older and tended Uh to be male that, similar to our data, had lower baseline quality of life scores, and I think they used a few different metrics, and then similarly had a reduction in their their post-medical improvement. And the reduction was not as as good as, let's say, in a younger population. That's interesting. So, you know, I think that I was trying to think about how, you know, as a physician, how do we take some of these data from your group and and others like Solar that you mentioned, and and how do we, how does that help us in terms of our clinical care? And, again, one of the the hot topic areas that I've been reading and coming across, and maybe you have too, are this, have you heard about these shared decision-making tools that are, are coming out to help physicians talk? to their patients to help them do the shared decision-making. So basically, they go through all these different treatment options and knowing, okay, your your cohort, what we know about the results, how well it works, let's say medical therapy versus surgical therapy, and then some of the side effects and, you know, risk and, and benefits, those kind of things. I think that your data and along with other people could really help towards maybe making some of these tools that we sort of talk about in these meetings, you know, the shared decision-making tools. Or, or do you see it being utilized differently? No, I mean, I think that that's where we're headed. I mean, I, you know, the challenge with a lot of this data that, that, that we all publish is 
is that it's often very complex. And I think framing it in a way where a patient can use that data to make their own decisions about their care can be very difficult. Even just for one paper or one study, it can be diff very difficult. So synthesizing you know, multiple studies from the literature and trying to use uh, that data and, and allow a patient to make decisions based on that is challenging. But I think if we can come up with mechanisms that allow this to be put into some sort of more focal algorithm that a patient can understand and really sort of see the data in a way that's interpretable, I, I think could be very helpful. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. I think that you guys did some great work, and, and thank you again, Justin, for sharing your study with us and the interpretation and kind of the background story on it. I suspect that you're probably starting to enjoy some of the fall weather now, if not already, or are coming up soon. How's the weather there? Good? It's turning fall uh, quicker here than it probably is in, uh, <laughs> in Houston. Houston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, we just got this crazy tornado storm that just kind of blasted in through here, but it's starting to cool down. But uh, I do remember the last time I was in Nashville, you guys get some pretty beautiful colors, so uh, I'm sure you'll yeah. be looking forward to it soon. It's a good couple months. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin, thank you so much. I, again, I appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you, I guess, uh, at Cosm. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ed. All thank right. Thanks for having me. Bye, Justin. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Minology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.